Welcome, flower friends, to the Local Flowers Podcast, where you'll fall in love with local seasonal blooms even more by hearing the stories from flower farmers new and experienced. I'm your host, Rochelle, from Freckled Bloom Flower Farm. Welcome. Welcome back, friends, to the Flower Farmer Chats. I know I've been gone for a while. I've been celebrating the holidays and doing all the flower farming stuff that is required of me as well. So I am so excited to share this conversation I had with Julia from Full Keel Farms in Florida. We had this conversation back, I think it was in late October, so just use that as context. But her and her husband, Earl, are farming in Florida, and they sell primarily to florists. So I'm just excited to share this conversation with you and I hope you enjoy it. Well hey friends welcome back to the podcast. On this week's Flower Farmer Chat I've got Julia from Full Keel Farm in Florida. Welcome Julia to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we usually start the podcast with just you telling us more about yourself, your journey to flowers, and just tell us more about your farm and what it's like to grow flowers there in Florida. I farm with my husband in north central Florida. He is full-time off-farm and I am full-time on the farm. We are finishing up our fifth year growing flowers. So we started in 2019 and for the first five years we've been on a pretty small scale. This year we were right around a half an acre in production and then in July of this year, we were really fortunate to be able to purchase the 17 acres that are directly across the street. And so we will be pretty significantly expanding the farm and the farm production. So we are underway on that. The journey to flowers really started when I was young, and I would say it's kind of parallel paths of exposure to flowers and then also an interest in agriculture. So I grew up, both of my parents always gardened, like we always had flower gardens, um, pretty extensive. We would plant flowers with them, we would draw flowers with them. And so I have a lot of memories of being in the flower garden. And I also always brought flowers to my teachers for school. So like every first day of school picture, we're holding like little bouquets from the flower garden. And then at the same time in high school, my first job was on a vegetable farm. And so I started doing like the U-Pick strawberries. I was in charge of supervising that, like handing out the flats and showing people where to pick. Also washing and packing vegetables. So this was about a 200 acre kind of diversified vegetable farm in Massachusetts. So they sold through a farm stand on the property, but the bulk of the sales were wholesale to supermarkets and then even to like the big wholesale produce markets in Boston. You know, I've shared before, but that was the first couple summers. It was in incredibly tough. (laughs) Like it was such a difficult job. I was working such long hours and there were a lot of days that I didn't want to go. My mom was kind of just like pushing me out of the car and I was on the verge of tears because it just felt so tough and so overwhelming. But that really kind of nurtured this seed of this love for agriculture that I grew. And after a few summers, I just loved being there and loved that type of work, loved the agricultural community that I was a part of. And I think that the fact that um, that initial farm boss, who was like to this day, the toughest boss who I ever had, he was one of the few non-family members at my wedding when my husband and I got married, like really reflects like the impact that he 
had on on me personally and on kind of this life that I'm building now in agriculture. I love that. And coming from a farming background myself, it's a lot of work, like you said, and it's tough work. And especially those kind of on a more micro scale veggie farming, oftentimes there's not a lot of machinery involved. So a lot of it is using our hands and our bodies. And it is a ton of work. And I almost wish like every school program had a bus of volunteers and all the kids would go to these veggie farms because we have a lot around here too and they get their experience what it is to work on a veggie farm because uh it's a lot of work (laughs) so when you met your husband how did you guys start your flower farming journey after the veggie farm experience We actually met on my first day of work at Buck Island Ranch, which is a 10,500-acre cattle ranch in Central Florida that is run by Archibald Biological Station. And so we were both working there kind of in agricultural research. He was working as an environmental engineer on one project, and I had been hired as a research assistant for a separate project on wetlands ecology. So we met. I met him on the first day. My boss at the time actually had gotten the field truck stuck basically two hours into my first day of work. And we had kind of walked out towards the edge of one of the pastures. And my husband was coming in for the week in his truck. And my boss like flagged him down and was like, she's supposed to be like filling out paperwork. Can you give her a ride to the office? (laughs) And so that was how we met. He also has always had an interest in agriculture. He grew up, um, his family has done like hay production on a small scale. He had property that he cut hay off of for many years. But for the first several years, we just worked in kind of academic research together. And we always grew, like we had a small vegetable garden when we were living at the field station. We lived there together. Then when we moved up here to North Florida, and purchased our home and property here. We put in like a slightly larger vegetable garden. And it wasn't until 2018 that we first planted any flowers. And in 2019 is kind of when I started to see the opportunity to turn flowers into a business with the limited space that we had. It was really looking for a way to pursue agriculture, find a way to make it a source of income. And flowers seemed to be like kind of a niche market. They were really starting to develop in popularity there was starting to be more information available about how to grow them in different climates. You know, there were already a lot of people who were doing a really good job with like market vegetable gardens. And so even though my background was more in vegetables, pastures and cattle, flowers really seemed to be a way for us to kind of start to pursue that. Most people, it seems like their journeys start with veggies and then slowly the veggies go out and the flowers take over. So I love just hearing that over and over again. So what is it like to grow in Florida and what does your operation look like today? I know you're doing a lot of wholesale orders to florists, so maybe tell us a little bit more about that as well. But I am curious about just farming in Florida. I know it gets hot and humid and what does your season look like and how do you cope with all the things? Yeah, so I think the climate is really the driving force behind 
pretty much everything we're doing and all the decisions that I'm making. Really looking at aspects of climate and weather that maybe people in other growing regions don't need to consider as much. And when we think about temperature, for example, we are in zone 8B. And so the zone I always like to mention reminder is that zone just tells us our average annual minimum temperature. And so it doesn't really convey much about how warm we get or how much vernalization, like how many chill hours we get. So in the winter, we are relatively mild, like our average lows are in the 40s, but we do get these periodic episodes of extremely cold weather. For example, last December, we had lows in like around 19 degrees, 20 degrees Fahrenheit for five days in a row, which is pretty significant. And so it's like that little brief burst of cold weather is what is giving us that classification as zone 8B. But at the same time, we have um, really large temperature fluctuations in the winter, and then we have warm spring and summer temperatures. And so we kind of have these smaller windows, like even though we have a high number of frost days. We're kind of thinking of that in terms of these windows where the daily low and high temperatures are kind of suitable for different crops and cool season and warm season production. So here we plant, I plant cool season flowers like in October through January and then I plant warm season crops in like February and March and then that production takes us basically through the end of June and then I don't plant anything else again until around August and we do a short window of warm season fall flowering warm season annuals and so I think another really important distinction is that a lot of times when we think of cool flowers we're thinking about them overwintering, right like you plant them in the fall before your first frost date they're establishing the roots that are going to allow them to survive through the winter but in our location they're actually not overwintering. They're actively growing through the winter. And that means that although they may be cold hardy, i.e. they could survive the cold, we actually do need to provide cold protection because they are in a period of active growth and therefore more susceptible to cold damage. And so I think that there are like a lot of kind of small nuances like that that can make figuring out the timing and the management of crops here challenging for people who are new to growing them in this type of, of climate. That is so true. And I loved how you, you know, I'm technically 8B as well. So, but we have totally different growing conditions. And so I almost hate the zones because it gets, it's just so confusing. We could do a whole episode just digressing on what defines a zone and what that means and all the things. But like you said, too, just your plants are actively growing so if they do get shot with that really really cold weather you've lost the plant essentially and I've been so impressed by my straw flower this year and I know that it tends to be marked as a cool flower but I've just I was like questioning really is it a cool flower because that thing has been pumping out blooms from June all the way and we're almost into November and it survived the heat the hot of summer so I'm like I 
don't quite get that, but yeah, there's all these nuances that on the surface, they don't get talked about, but by growing in your space and your conditions, you start to learn all the ways you can be successful. So with that said, you're doing the wholesale orders to the florist. Why did you choose that sales outlet and what does that look like for you? Yeah, so I think probably like most people, I started anticipating that I would do retail sales and make like mixed market bouquets. That was what you saw everybody else doing. I didn't really understand wholesale at that point as like a viable option. And so my first year, 2019, I sold everything retail. I sold through some shops. I sold mixed bouquets directly to a small produce store that offered them. And it worked pretty well, but I had a very young son at the time and just kind of trying to balance the workload of the production side and the bouquet making and dropping bouquets off, picking bouquets up um, that were unsold. Like it, it seemed like how I was allocating my time was not really on the production side, which is where I wanted things to be. And then in 2020, our growing season really picks up in like February and March. And so we kind of went into March of 2020 with a lot of flowers and then we had the pandemic. A lot of people pivoted to kind of like porch pickups or delivery options, but I just didn't see a way in our rural area to make that work. And so I pivoted to florists. There were florists who were looking for local product who I already had, you know, established some basic relationships with through social media. They just became such great supporters like personally and as you know financially as customers that I think I moved 100% to florists that year and kind of in the back of my head I was thinking and I was telling people right yeah eventually I'll get back to doing retail bouquets like I'm just not sure when that's going to be but by the end of that season and definitely by 2021 it was pretty clear to me that that was the path that I wanted to be on. I think there is this incredible community of florists in our region who want to use local product is a relatively young area in terms of flower growers like there are a lot of new growers who are starting to grow flowers but we don't have kind of this established community of growers who are able to supply florists with the volume of product that they're looking for on a weekly basis. They're really talented at at what they're doing and I kind of see it as like really being able to play a complementary role that emphasizes my strengths which I see more as like the growing side and then their strengths which is the designing and the delivery and those types of customer interactions and so for me it has been really positive. I have kind of worked to try to figure out how to make selling wholesale only as profitable as possible, right? Like I think that there's kind of this misconception maybe that you need to sell retail in order to make money growing flowers because of the stem price. But when you're actually looking at, you know, your crop planning and the crops you're growing and your margins on particular flowers and the labor and, you know, all those other pieces, like I think it is, you know, very possible if that's the better fit for you to pursue florist sales. Well, and that's the beauty of this industry is there's 
so many options. And like you said, there is like this push to go to retail, but there's a whole nother world in the wholesale piece. And so tell us a little bit more about your community. You mentioned that you're in a rural area. So I'm just curious a little bit, oftentimes in these rural areas, it's a significant drive to a wholesale. So what I've heard a lot from folks that I've interviewed that are in more rural communities is the florists are thrilled that people are growing flowers because they would have to take like a five-hour trip to just go get flowers and so even if it's just for three months out of the year that's something that that florist can rely on locally and they don't have to make that trip so could you tell us a little bit about where you're located and the population and just more about the florists in your area we're located in north central florida about 40 minutes north of gainesville which is like kind of a i guess medium-sized college town city and then about an hour and a half from jacksonville which would be like the larger metropolitan area. The bulk of my florist customers who I sell to currently are in Gainesville. And that's really just because of the timing of when they came on board. I have not been taking new florist customers for pretty much two two seasons. Like one or two is all I've kind of been able to squeeze into my availability list. And so typically I deliver to Gainesville once a week or they're really good about meeting me halfway um, depending on what the needs are so we kind of have a a pickup spot which is at a park and ride so we spend a lot of time just like hanging out in the random parking lot there to do flowers. I do have a couple retail florists who are also in rural communities who who I sell to but the majority really is for like event design and event work and I love that it's like the Facebook marketplace you're meeting in a random parking lot so have you thought about doing farm pickup or what is kind of your sustainability with the continued delivering the flowers what do you think about continuing with that model or would the florist be willing to do farm pickup. Yeah, so we are kind of in the thick of figuring out how those logistics are going to work for 2024 because we are going to be scaling up. And the goal really is to find a way to get this larger volume of flowers to the florists, especially florists in Jacksonville area, florists who are slightly outside of my typical delivery window, who have been like the most unbelievable cheerleaders of local flower farmers while they're kind of patiently waiting for farming community to get these flowers, like get enough growing to get to them. And so I would say at this point, we are kind of trying to figure out some options like behind the scenes in terms of the logistics of selling like direct to florists there and getting delivery done, offering some pickup selling through a wholesaler to have more flowers available to them. I think that's definitely like one of the most challenging pieces is the delivery aspect of it when they're kind of distributed over a larger area. You know, I'm really fortunate that up until this point, a small number of 
florists were essentially purchasing everything that I had every week. But as we try to expand the market and try to meet that additional need, like we're just really going to have to evaluate what's going to work kind of for both the florists and for for ourselves. And is there a co-op, say in Jacksonville, that you can join? Because I know like here in Oregon, we have the Oregon Flower Growers Association. And as part of the larger wholesaler there in Portland, but all the local flower farmers from around this region go and sell their product at OFGA. And it's such a, an amazing place. And you, it's like Black Friday every day with the florist. So is there an opportunity for you with like a co-op to kind of be able to drop off flowers at like a larger wholesale or something like that? Um, we do not have any like local cooperative or collective yet. It's it's definitely my dream that something like that will exist here in Florida and hopefully sooner rather than later. It's like really exciting to see more and more growers kind of scaling up their production and starting to sell to florists on some level. Like I get so excited when I see new growers who also want to sell to florists because I think it means that the possibility of something like that becomes more tangible than maybe even two years ago it seemed like it was going to be. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, Miami's a hub, so I don't know how far, I don't know my geography in Florida, sorry, apologize, but I know Miami's a huge hub for a lot of imports. So I'm curious to know what has been thought about local versus having so much imported through Florida. What has been the movement to local flowers in Florida? Yeah, I'm not sure, right? Like, I guess I can't really speak for all of the regional markets. I know that I have had a really great reception and but I know that there are growers in other areas who the florists are maybe more interested in kind of conventional product but I think that the design style of the florists that I'm selling to is very conducive to local product. I think they're interested just in general in terms of the sustainability of local product like the carbon footprint of local product. I think they're their customers are interested in incorporating local products. Like now, I feel like it's really exciting where they're starting to have customers who are asking for specific local flowers by name, you know, that they're familiar with. And so that really shows that you can kind of create this demand, right? Like now I see a lot of times where florists are communicating that their brides like are specifically asking for things like Cosmos. And so that's really something that is inherently a local flower right it's not like ranunculus where they can source it through wholesale but the florist might be excited about sourcing it locally like that's definitely something where even if the customer maybe doesn't know that it's a local product right these types of flowers are starting to become more mainstream in in floristry Um, and so I think that you know I have also really tried to focus on flower quality and I think that that is important in building relationships with florists and when it's a relative relatively young market in terms of growers selling to florists is that they're starting out with a really positive impression of what local product can be. And then when they're sharing their work that they're designing with that local product, like other florists 
start to see the potential of local product as well. Then I think trying to kind of find a balance between crops that are really reliable for me to produce, but then crops that kind of fill this need that they have for specific elements, right? Like airy elements, textural elements, elements that are more delicate that you know may not handle as well in in transport that they want to be able to use. I love all the points you just made because uh, this just shows that the more that we get our product out there the more that florists are using it and sharing it on tools like Instagram or posting pictures on Pinterest. That's really where the the revolution will come is we all get it those Pinterest pictures that people are showing us and you're like oh the blush and the the eucalyptus when is this going to change but as you know as it continues to evolve and the stories get shared so will local flowers being incorporated into more of the the mainstream media so it's exciting to see and I love that you brought up just focusing on quality but then also the flowers the foliages that really will not ship in a box and then especially if you're selling to a florist you know when they are ordering in you know they're paying so much for those flowers and nothing is more frustrating than getting an order in and they're having to throw 25% of it away to breakage or spoil and so I just think that's such a selling point for us as local flower farmers is that it is coming from the field to the florist and it's the freshest that you get and you don't have that waste as you would coming in a box and it's been banged around so it's just another great selling point what different crops are you raising and what do you find kind of the most popular and dive into your 17 acres too what are your hopes for that but mainly kind of what are you growing today and what have you found to be successful crops with selling to your florists Yeah, so I would say that, I guess to kind of give it a little context, I think to make the sales to florists the most successful, like one strategy is growing larger quantities of fewer things. And so as we kind of pivoted to all florist sales. That was like one of the more challenging things because you want to grow everything, but you really want to be able to estimate availability in advance. Like you really want to be able to provide enough quantity to actually fill an order that they have for a specific item so that they're not, so that they're able to keep it in their plan or they're not trying to piece it from like a few different growers. And so I'd say that over the last two years, the number of different things that we are growing has kind of gone down, but the quantity of each of them has gone up. So really nothing, not much is getting planted on a smaller scale than like half a bed. And most things are getting planted as full beds. And so the kind of the boat spring crops would be kind of the standards, right? Like snapdragons. I did ranunculus, butterfly ranunculus, like delphinium and foxgloves. So those are kind of the earliest bloomers here. We have those from kind of late January until early March. And those are in the tunnel and in the field. And then we kind of start to get these like transitional spring crops 
which would be kind of the later success successions of snapdragons and then more filler type flowers, right? We have status, draw flowers, Ami, Veronica kind of carries us into like the warm season. And so I would say warm season, I tend to be more limited. It's kind of like I lose my momentum, right? Like people get fall burnout in other climates, but we get like May, June burnout here because we've been going for like, like we start at the end of September, essentially the next growing season. And then we're going until I'm going until the end of June. And so by that point, I usually haven't taken a, a day off. And so then kind of into like by May, we actually have this year, I had dahlias the second week in May, Lysianthus, and then kind of the basics like zinnias and cosmos, celosia. And so the goal though with the new property is to start to kind of flesh that list out more and be able to grow kind of multiple crops in each of those windows or in each of those categories. Like for example, like this year, I just was able to do like one succession of the green mist Ami. And then I did like a couple successions of the regular white Ami and none of the chocolate lace flower. Whereas like for the spring, we have multiple successions of each of those planned, which is much better for selling to florists because like right now they kind of get used to something that I have and then it's like, it's gone. But at the same time, like I don't want to just have like three beds of green mist Ami because then there's not really like much of an interesting selection to offer them. So the goal will be is, yeah, then we'll have more crops in kind of each of those categories and larger quantities of them and I think like the middle spring flowers that's like really the time that it's just kind of the best time here you have this like overlap of like the line flowers all the spikes and you are starting to have things like nigella and scabiosa coming into bloom and so really to kind of go all in on that on that period so are you growing in field and then you're also growing in high tunnels so how does that work for you and I'm I'm imagine that's a succession plan in itself just the high tunnel versus the field but do you also get to a point where it's so hot that you ditch your high tunnels and just do field grown flowers yeah so the tunnels um, we really put up for winter growing to offer some protection from rainfall in the winter but also to provide the ability to kind of push those early spring crops a bit sooner. It's not just that the structure is providing some protection, protected growing environment, but also that we are able to provide kind of supplemental emergency heat. So we have like portable propane heaters that we can put in those tunnels when we get down to 20 degrees in January. And that means that like the last two years, we have had buds on snapdragons and delphinium when we had temperatures, you know, in the 20s. And so without those tunnels and the ability to kind of hold that heat in there um, we would have lost that first cut on those crops generally I am reserving the space for highest value crops where we'll see like the best return on the investment for that use of space, like the delphinium, the lysianthus, the ranunculus. As those come out, there are warm season crops that do okay in the tunnel, mostly celosia. I try to get some successions of celosia in there, but otherwise we basically just like pull them out and just kind of let them rest until they're they're planted for some fall celosia. For us during really the growing season, our rain stops in 
know, in say, well, oftentimes now July, and we usually don't see a drop of rain until like September, sometimes August. For my Lysianthus, you know, I grow them in the field. They are still flushing out blooms, and so I've had to go out there with like my tents and (laughs) cover them. So I'm curious, like where you're at, do you get rain, and is that another reason why, like, say you put your Lysianthus in the tunnel because you've got to protect those blooms from getting moisture on them? Yeah, so on our current farm site, it would be a combination of like rainfall damage to the flowers, but also we are drainage, like poor drainage. Where our original farm is, we have a high seasonal water table. During the winter, right, it's we also have low transpiration from the, the plants. So if we get really wet, like it takes a long time for that water to move out of the beds. And so in the tunnels we created, we added about eight inches of soil to kind of create mounded beds in the tunnels. And so the combination of the tunnel structure and the raised bed does help kind of shed some of that water. I guess maybe it was three years ago at this point, we lost probably 80% of our spring crops and all of our ranunculus just from, from the field flooding. That was like the impetus to kind of really move forward and get the tunnels up. And they do definitely provide protection from the rain, like in terms of the flower quality. We're in a really humid climate, so we do still have a lot of condensation. And so it's definitely not like a total solution for that issue. Like you still do have to be mindful of some of like the light colors and and certain things in the tunnel. You can still see petal damage from the moisture and the condensation, but better than like direct heavy rainfall. For sure. And so what kind of colors, what's, what's the color look like in your field? What are your florists asking for? Say neutrals, like warm neutrals, but not a lack of color. Like I would say that most people who grow for florists probably grow a high chunk of white. I'd say that mine is very low because white flowers don't do super well in this climate. Like they're just so prone to insect damage. They're so prone to showing any little blemish that with limited space, it really hadn't been worth it to try to push the envelope too hard on white flowers. So like I grow white delphinium, like cloud larkspur, but like I don't do a lot of white snapdragons because I think that's just asking for issues. So I'd say other neutrals like beigey colors, creamy colors, ivory, and then I grow a lot of like peach and apricot and coral. I'm excited to kind of push the colors a little bit wider again with the additional space. So I think I really focused on colors that are maybe more flexible in how they can be used. You know, they could be used with different color palettes. They could kind of read a different way depending on the flowers that they're paired with. And so that makes them a little bit more versatile, just since I don't grow like this huge quantity of of different flowers. That's right, you know, based on what you're selling, it could be different for all of us. So I got a question for you on the delphinium, which I totally want to plant more of. I absolutely love that flower, but it's been a workhorse for me. I have it planted in my field. It's definitely has perennialized, but I had like a spring flush of blooms and then I got another flush off of them and they're already starting to work on more growth and I'm like wow uh this is a plant that I need to grow more of so can we just dive a little bit into delphinium and I want to for my own selfish reasons I'd love to know about do you get multiple successions off of it for cuts and then also is it does it act as a perennial for you or do you plant it every year as an annual yes so 
I do grow it as an annual. We have tried twice to perennialize it, and the issue really is the the summer temperatures and the water table in the summer. You know, the amount of effort to kind of keep it alive through the summer has not really been justified. We kind of like go into July and we're like, oh, maybe they're gonna make it through, and then. I start to see them dying off and at that point just like the labor to kind of let the bed keep going or try to keep weeding the bed and have those gaps. So I grow it as an annual. I primarily grow the Guardian series which is like a F1 for cut flower production. So they produce really high quality flowers and because I grow it as an annual I plant it at six inch spacing. So I do it relatively tight um, just in order to get the highest number of stems per possible per square foot. The, we get a really high quality first cut usually in the end of February and early March and then I do get a second cut off of the majority of the plants before the heat really sets in and the flower quality starts to decline and Guardian has definitely been the most heat tolerant I don't really like that term but you know it's done the best with the conditions heating up and then this year we'll actually add in like some of the belladonna delphiniums like the Clividin beauty and see how those do. Last year I also grew some of the Pacific Giants but they had more of an extended flowering window which was not as good for florist sales but for somebody growing for mixed bouquets it might be good. Like I really like the Guardian because if I see the buds starting then I can basically say like I'll have you know one quarter of these week one and then like half of them are going to be ready the following week and then they'll be like the last quarter of the production the week after that. So I can really estimate the stem availability better off of that whereas the Pacific Giants they, I mean, they grew giant, right? Some of them were like eight feet tall in the tunnel, but it was much more sporadic in terms of the flower production. So for my needs, that didn't work as well. It's just one example of a local flower. Those things are so delicate. I swear if you bump it, there goes the bud. But one example of a local flower that you could probably grow a ton of and have florists just eating it up because you don't have the loss as say if it were shipped in a box. That said, I'm am curious a little bit about just the pests that you're dealing with. I do want to ask you, are you a one-woman show or do you have help? Because this seems like a lot to manage on your own. But just with pest management, you know, I chose not to raise in a high tunnel because it just seems like there's so much that goes into just raising flowers in a high tunnel from soil health, uh, pest pressure. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what kind of pest you're dealing with and how are you managing those high tunnel crops versus your field grown crops okay yeah so your first question during the week it's just me Um, well my husband works off farm but he does probably work most weeks like at least 20 to 30 hours for the farm so he works Monday through Thursday full-time at his off farm job and then like Fridays he's all day doing stuff here and then like Saturday and Sunday just depending on what the workload is the goal will be to get towards something more sustainable (laughs) where we're both not working all weekend and where we can take time off together on the weekend. For now, it's just kind of, we have this opportunity to continue to build it and we're gonna go for it. Um, So for pests, yeah, I would say that our pest pressure is probably not that significantly different in terms of the primary pests that we deal with. Like the largest category would be soft-bodied insects. So like thrips, 
and aphids, I would say, are the two. You know, one challenge in our climate is that we don't necessarily have these harsh winter temperatures that are reducing the pest populations and enough vegetation can sometimes survive to provide overwintering habitat because we also are ten- tend to cover all of our plants when we're going to have frost or freeze. Like any weeds in the ILA can also harbor those pest populations. And so I, I do think that that is one additional challenge. We rely primarily on beneficial insects for pest management. And that's mainly just because of a labor issue, because of like an efficacy issue. In the winter, when the temperatures are a little bit too low for the beneficials that I like to use, if we have aphids, I will use other like insecticidal soap or use some other product just to kind of knock the aphids down. Like sometimes we get aphids as soon as the foxgloves set buds or stock. Like I try to scout like really carefully. Like every day I walk through all the beds and then I try to look pretty carefully at least once or twice a week just to make sure that we're seeing any of those pests early on. And then I kind of just also get to a point where you're like anticipating that they're going to be be showing up and you can be more proactive with managing them. I guess the other category, right, would be like caterpillar. You know, we have tent caterpillars that can come at certain types of year and certain crops that they are really just decimate. And for now, my solution is to just not grow those like gum free I just like lose it in the plug trays to these little like web caterpillars and webworms. Um, and so I just have allocated the space to other things. The dahlias are like the other maybe pest prone crop and that's the same, right? Thrips and then tarnished plant bugs, grasshoppers. So yeah, I put like grasshoppers kind of in. Um, so for things like that, the same for the soft bodied insects, the same as the tunnel crops, the beneficial insects released. We also have installed bluebird boxes. So we have really tried to increase the bird population and that has made a pretty noticeable difference. And then I do use the organza bags on the dahlias for the tarnished plant bugs if necessary. But as I have kind of adjusted my dahlia season, like nudged it forward a little, we're usually pretty well into it before we're starting to see any of those types of pests. Unless it's really impacting a large percentage of the blooms, I'm pretty much just accepting that I'm going to lose some to insect damage like by the middle of June and for the last couple weeks in June. Yeah, it's a lot to manage, especially if you're suffering from all the pests, uh, thrips, oh. Those guys are just, they're, and they're so tiny and sneaky. Is there a specific strategy for thrips? And also, like, what beneficial insects are you releasing? Is there a good source that you recommend? Yeah, so I typically get them from Arbica Organics or Evergreen Grower Supply. And we use a combination of kind of generalist predators. So that would be things like my new pirate bugs, like green lace wings, assassin bugs. And then I also use uh, mite predators for the thrips. I think the most important thing is to look at your temperatures and your relative humidity. So that has a big impact on like the different species reproduction and different species of mite predators want to reproduce under different conditions. 
And so we use one which um, is well suited towards high temperature and high humidity conditions. And I just release them. They're like in these little sachets and you can put them out, um, release the minute pyre bugs as a, as a generalist predator for, for the thrips. So remind me, what year of growing are you in right now? This was our fifth year. So even uh, since I really started really focusing on inviting all of, like you said, the bluebirds and just creating an environment that promotes diversity on my farm, in this last year, I have seen so much growth of biodiversity and just my nature's helpers coming out. And so it's really exciting to see that happen. Um, And just I've really focused on watching nature and seeing what's inviting the birds in to like for instance I have these rogue sunflowers and the birds have been eating the seeds but I'm also watching them go around my beds and digging up all the bad insects in my soil and I think that's the most exciting thing about flower farming if I geek out for a moment it's just watching nature come to your rescue and you're not constantly fighting it with something else but it takes time and it takes time of creating that bio environment that they want to come to help you with so yeah and I think yeah definitely requires patience and I think that you have to anticipate that the transition to beneficials is you're going to have some moments of panic um you know there are also like the first year and and I definitely am not opposed to like spraying like we have just found that the beneficials are like working really well but there are you know certain products like the botanigard which is like the bovaria bassiana that is compatible with the mite predators and so if you want to transition to beneficials you can use a program like that where you are using a knockdown spray and like that can work in conjunction to help manage that pest population while the beneficial population starts to establish. And then I think really being on top of your scouting and kind of preemptively already having those beneficials ordered is important because once you're really starting to see like thrips and all your dahlias, you're kind of way behind the game. And we've all been there and you just kind of like scream and cry. But (laughs) I think like saying like, if I'm growing dahlias, I will have thrips is like once I kind of say like I know that I'm going to have this issue and so here's like the date that these things are going out it it starts to help you and I think regardless of the method that you're going to use for insect management like when I made that switch and said I'm going to have these things not if I have them then you became much better at managing them oh that's an excellent point I envision a huge calendar on your wall (laughs) telling you order my beneficial insects start flower seeds like there's so much to this that a project management degree it would probably be very beneficial in this career (laughs) especially you're a one-woman show and your husband does help but uh that's a lot my friend and you're growing a lot and you're going to be expanding so are there any tools or tips or tricks that have helped you be successful in just managing it all or any bit of advice that you would offer up because I'm so impressed by you there's you're just incredible my friend well I would say nobody should probably actually follow my approach for how I stay organized because I rely on my brain way too much to keep track of information but yeah I I use a combination of excel to like crop plan and I do use a large calendar 
like you said, and just say like, okay, these are the tasks for the week. I schedule like every everything that's and then I would say for me, a couple things that have helped is schedule the same thing for the same day every week. Like when we run fertilizer, it's like really easy to be like, okay, that needs to get done this week. But it's like if every Monday I run the fertilizer injector and then certain crops that we spray with things like Xerotol or like Regalia, Millstop, it's like I figure out, right, like what, what is the interval I need in between those and like what is the any period I need like before I can spray the next thing and I set that up and then it just goes on the calendar so that like Thursday is always the day that I do this and the same for seed starting because I think in a climate or in a location or in a setup where you have like this extended growing season and you're kind of continually starting seeds that's like a really easy thing to put on the back burner so just saying like this this is always the day that I'm going to do this has really helped me stay on top of it more. I also now it's this is a hard one but I do not start the seeds until the bed is ready for the transplant because if we get out of sync there have been like too many instances where I'm like these seeds need to get started they're started but I know there is like no chance like then they're, I know they're actually going to just sit in the trays until we get the bed ready so now it's like the bed is ready the bed is tarped and then I, I get those seeds started and then the last thing is take lots of pictures because if I don't get the information written down then every time I start seeds like every week when I go into the prop house like I just take a couple pictures and then I always have that as a record like every time I transplant I take a picture and so then I can always go back and use that to fill in the records where like real record keeping didn't happen. Oh my gosh, that is such an excellent point. As I'm staring at this box right next to me, where I've written down um, when I started the seed on the seed pack, and I still need to input it into my Excel document, and uh, <laughs> definitely gonna be sitting on the back burner until it starts to rain and we have frost. But that your phone, we were talking before we got recording, just about how your phone, this thing next to my lawnmower, might be the number one tool it's everything to me um and taking pictures that's such an excellent piece of advice because that's something that's just easy it's you know the c-pack it might disappear in my pouch and be dirty and wet and i've lost that date i ran i wrote on the c-pack but my phone is always great record keeping but it also could be a detriment because i tried to video all the dahlia tubers that i planted and now I'm out there like, what? This does not look like Linda's baby. Oh. <laughs> so, okay, we've been talking for an hour. I have so many questions still, but I did want to ask. So you're not only trying to figure out just the farming piece of it, which is a lot of work in itself, but just trying to figure out your availability. I always love this question of when I'm having a wedding in June, what is blooming in June? So I, you know, I'm direct to consumer, so there's not a lot of stress with trying to figure out what's blooming and when weddings to me are so stressful uh, because you're like ranunculus I need you to bloom on June 12th please bloom so how do you kind of manage that availability with your florist are you like a week out where you tell them like hey this is about ready to bloom to know a little bit more about that communication you have with your florist and just figuring out availability yes so I would say that there is a little bit of diversity depending on the florist. 
in terms of how I'm handling that. And as I take on more florists, like it's going to have to probably become more streamlined. But I have some florists who essentially take growers' choice every week. They're primarily doing retail or they take growers' choice, but I know them well enough that I'm essentially fulfilling it with flowers and colors that really match their design design style and so in that sense like those orders are relatively straightforward if they have an event on top of their regular work we'll usually talk about what colors or what flowers they need for that but typically especially because my availability is more limited the florists are often emailing me like at least a few weeks in advance and it's kind of like this is the color palette this is the budget like what do you expect to have at that time and we kind of put a rough potential availability for that for that date together and then usually one and a half to two weeks out we will kind of finalize it with specific flowers and stem counts and then I just confirm that at the end of the week before or the beginning of the week of and make any adjustments um, that we need to and definitely I have spent a few nights worrying (laughs) right about whether those flowers are actually going to bloom on time whether they're going to survive on time like especially like in the fall like we're like going towards the end of the season or in the spring as we're warming up right sometimes things look great and then like 10 days later it looks absolutely like trash and you just have to be like just kidding like I can't bring you that but for the scale that I'm at and like the number of seasons that I've kind of been working with the same florists that works well right they're pretty much familiar with most of the flowers that I'm growing I'm familiar with their design style and we can communicate pretty quickly back and forth by email and text with that but with a larger list of florists like a more conventional like weekly availability where they're offering that I think you really need enough availability to kind of justify like sending out that list and having people order from it and pre-orders were kind of when I was smaller kind of got into the routine of doing those pre-orders and continue to just have that approach evolve next year will definitely be different in another area where we'll be kind of figuring out what that expansion will be like as we go yeah is there a tool that helps manage you and your process that you use um so i do have an account on rooted farmers and so you can do like real-time availability on there they can order off of your real-time availability i don't know if that's the tool i will be like using in the spring right now my florists and i are not really using it just because we're like kind of they're in the routine of of pre-ordering and that method seems to be working okay i think that one challenge that i had with that type of system which is not like that platform but just just that type of system in general is that my availability was limited and i think that florists who wanted to order from me were like creating an account in order to be able to order but there was just not actually enough availability to even load inventory for the week because it had already all been pre-sold and so I think trying to manage that has been a challenge I think people see it as like oh well that's so great like your demand exceeds what you have every week but instead it, it often feels like well like how does this like little pie get allocated 
you know, to the people who want it fairly each week. That's another great question is, are your floors fighting over certain varieties? <laughs> How do you kind of manage that of everybody wants that white snapdragon that you only grew <laughs> as a test? And are there certain flowers that they fight over? Yeah, so it's pretty much like first come, first serve. Like if I have you on the calendar, you're kind of going to get first dibs of, of what it is. Then usually I'll just say like, I I think I'll probably have enough to add some of this to yours, but you know, we'll just have to see the week of. But I think that, I mean, they're great. So I feel like everyone is super understanding. I just try to say like, nope, I don't have any more of that this week. <laughs> I've learned real quick that I can't grow everything, especially if I'm doing a wedding, I've got to rely on my other flower farmer friends to help me, especially when you're looking at a specific color palette. And so I've seen the line at OFGA. So I know that people are probably just like dying to get their hands on your flowers. So with that said, what would be your most favorite flower and which ones are you firing from your farm? Um, so I think that Delphinium are probably my favorite overall because they kind of check all the boxes. <laughs> like they are reliable. The effort to grow them is relatively low and like visually they're just such an unimpressive flower. So I think those have pretty quickly become one of my favorites in terms of the, the flowers I'm firing. So I have gotten much more ruthless in terms of getting rid of flowers that aren't working for me, I think. 2024, we're not growing any standard ranunculus. We're not growing any foxgloves. So it's like taking a season off just because the numbers were not working based on the production that we were getting in our climate. I tend to give the airy flowers like their chance and then if they're kind of too much of a nuisance to harvest, they temporarily get the boot until I'm kind of willing to try them again. Like Silene, the florists love Silene. They like buying it, but it's just so time consuming to harvest. So it's like I dropped that and I'm like, well, I'll probably bring it back someday. But I would say that now that we have more space, I have to reevaluate what my criteria and my rules are because with limited space, it was very easy for me to just cut things that you know weren't really meeting all of the criteria well and now I'm like trying to be a little bit more open-minded so bringing in things that I haven't grown for many years like bachelor buttons like Orlia like those were things that were just like off the list but now that we have the additional space they're coming back so Covenant Garden I don't know if that's the same one we're talking about but I know that's super popular but I just do not like it because the stems just want to snap and so it feels like you're hard harvesting all these flowers just to have them snap and so I hear you on that it's like kicking you out of here thank you I know you look really pretty in the pictures and people want you but those are some of the realities that we don't show yeah <laughs> well friend I just so appreciate your time Julia this has been such a great conversation and I could probably talk to you for another hour is there any piece of advice or anything that you would like to share with our audience that I haven't asked you I would say that my piece of advice is to not worry so much about what anybody else around you is doing and really trust your judgment and trust your crop plan. Like I think that what is working for somebody else 
may not work for you and that that is not a reflection on you as a grower or it's not the right thing for you personally. And I think that I have learned so much by watching what other growers are doing. But at the same time, I have also like questioned my decision making from doing that. And I think that like you really have to just make a good plan, like use the resources that are out there to do that, like the books that are out there, like the knowledge from other experienced growers to do it and then just like be confident in it and don't start second guessing things and like adding all these things or doing all these things just because of what you see other people doing. I love that piece of advice. I feel like you could look at Instagram and just get in severely depressed and question yourself over and over again. But when it all comes down to it, if you figure out a system that works for you, go with it. It's gonna work for you and nobody has the right to judge. So I love that piece of advice. Well, Julia, thank you so much for being on the podcast. If folks would like to follow you for inspiration or if we have more local florists looking for you how do folks reach out or follow you yep so on instagram we are at full keel farm and then uh the website is also www.fullkeelfarm.com well thank you again for being on the podcast we so appreciate you thank you it was a lot of fun i just want to say thanks again to julia for this conversation and joining us on the podcast each one of these conversations we can all gain something from each other's experience but I love what Julia said there at the end is trust your plan you are the one that's going to be doing the work executing on all the tasks so you can look to Instagram social media this podcast other podcasts for information but trust your gut go with your gut and if you fail that's okay you'll have learned something if you succeed that's even something else you can add to your notebook so I am just so excited for the season ahead. I will have an episode out reflecting on 2023 here probably this week and lots more farmer chats to come. So I hope you all are doing well and we'll talk to you again soon. Take care. Well, that wraps up this episode. Thank you so much for joining in to the conversation and together all boats will rise and local flowers will be blooming fabulous in all of our communities. So if you are a fellow flower farmer that want to join in on the conversation, please reach out to us to get you scheduled for a podcast episode. And if you're just listening in and enjoy the podcast, please share with your friends, your family, and everybody you know. We really appreciate it. Thank you.